So I know, so first I just want to say thank you, because uh, the Lord t- t- talks to you, and I appreciate that. This morning, I came in, and I, I felt like a lot of people came up to me and were like, oh, you're preaching. Let me pray for you. And they, the words that they were giving me were words of encouragement and like, you've got this kind of words. Uh, because all this week, I've kind of had this like burden on me, <laughs> and uh, which is, is weird because... I knew what I was going to preach. I knew what the sermon was. God gave me the sermon like a month ago. And then when this week started, I was like, uh, the la- like quite frankly, the last two sermons that I've preached have been excellent. And I know that. And so I've just felt this pressure to perform for you and give you my best and um, just knock it out of the park, hit another home run, and have you walk away going, Kevin is the best preacher in the world. He's just the, the greatest and there's a lot of pressure to be that guy. <laughs> uh, and I don't know that I'm, I can be that guy. And I don't know that, and so as a, this week, God has been speaking to me and, and he's been going, I don't, I'm not calling you to be that guy. I'm not asking you to be that guy. So this morning, I'm actually making an intentional choice of I'm going to preach while sitting because I really don't want to impress you with my uh, charismatic presentation. You're laughing, which suggests that I don't have as much charismatic presentation as I thought. <laughs> but I, ju- I just feel like the Lord is, what he's doing in me this morning is to just relax and enjoy his presence. And he's saying, I got this. You don't have to because I got, I got this. And you'll hear in the sermon how that's exactly what we're trying, to, what he's trying to say. So um, we are concluding the book of Genesis, we, uh, we've been starting this series where we've been going through the Old Testament and we're, we're understanding it and understanding how it relates to the New Testament. And when the priest team got together with Genesis, we're like, the, Genesis might be the most important book in the Old Testament. And if you understand Genesis, you understand the Bible. And if you don't understand Genesis, you don't understand anything. And so we spent a long time in Genesis, um, but it is, we, like, we finally reached the end of it, and now we're going to be moving to the, the next uh, set of books. And I just want you to know that the preach team has, has specifically said the other books will not take as long as Genesis. We're not going to spend three months in Exodus. We're not going to spend a year in Leviticus. Like, <laughs> that, that would be a failure uh, if, if, that's, if that's what happened. But Genesis is just so important. Uh, and I actually want to, as we transition out of Genesis, I want to leave you um, with a thought from, from Jesus. And Because what happens is when you read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, um, and you follow the narrative of Israel, um, there's certain themes that come up because that's how God is dealing with Israel in, in that particular time. And so over and over and over you hear the same thing. And so in our sermons, you're going to hear the same kind of message. And for, the, for Genesis, a lot of the focus has been on righteousness and faith. And it's not about what you do. And as, so as we move out of Genesis, we're going to go into Exodus where God's people are being called to be holy. And, and uh, we're going to understand the law and we're going to understand uh, the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood and all of these other big things. And it's going to sound like we're talking about something different. And so I just want to uh, hit you with uh, something Jesus said in John my clicker working? Yes, it is. Uh, In response to something uh, Jesus did, the crowd replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he sent. So just to continually hit the theme of Genesis, what work should we do, God? What what, uh, What work can I do to earn? Nothing. 
believe. Believe in Jesus. And that's it. So if, as we move on from Genesis, if we do anything that sounds like it's not this, this is what we're talking about. Fair enough? So I asked uh, David in the back in the last minute in the break, and I was like, I'm so sorry, but I need you to add a slide for me. And I asked him to, to pull up the, the bridge of the song we just sang, Your Name is Higher, Your Name is Greater, All My Hope is in You. Um, because it, uh, this happens all the time, and I, got, I leaned over to Kurt, and I was like, it, this happens every time, and it's never not cool when, every time it happens, where in worship, God preaches the sermon. And if you don't know the sermon, you're like, oh, that was an interesting moment. We did an interesting pivot. <laughs> uh, but this is the sermon. Like, if, you, if we get this, we get everything. So uh, we're going into, going into Exodus, and the, the theme we're using for Exodus is becoming his people. And after Genesis Origins has that, like, cool, like, kind of superhero name, I was pitching, like, Exodus Infinity War. But it, I'm the only nerd on the preach team, and uh, they, it got shot down. I think becoming his people is great. <laughs> but it's not like Infinity War. So we'll just, we'll pitch that. Um, and so to start in Exodus, I would like to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, which makes sense. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? When we talk about what it means to be a Christian, and in any kind of like altar call type situation where we're, we're asking people to become a Christian for the first time, uh, we don't typically do that at this church, but in a lot of churches and in a lot of gatherings, we use language like, oh, all you have to do is just accept Jesus in your heart. And, it, and the way that we phrase it, and that's true, by the way, but the way that we phrase it, it, it makes this relationship sound like Jesus is like persistent nag, <laughs> who's just been trying to get into your heart this whole time, and you're finally, like, allowing him to do it. And, and it, so it changes this relationship of, like, not the king of kings, lord of lords, creator in the heavens and earth wants you to be his follower. It's like, you are in charge, and you're like, yes, you can enter my heart. Yes, I will allow it. And what Jesus is saying here is, actually, what being a Christian looks like is being a follower of Jesus, uh, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross, which is a, a poetic way of saying die. Die to yourself. If you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. And if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And uh, when I encounter this, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to do that. I like my life. I like my job. I like my relationships. I like the way that I do life. I like the decisions I've made. And I like being in charge of that. And so, uh, Jesus, if you want me to give that up, quite frankly, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust anyone else except me because other people let me down. And how do I know, God, that you're not going to let me down too? And uh, sure, what do you, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, there's no benefit. And is anything worth more than your soul? I get that. But I can't see the transaction of my soul. 
I don't really know what that looks like, but I do know what it looks like to gain the whole world. And so there's this tension in what Jesus is saying, and it's not just like, oh, accept Jesus in your heart. It's it, be my follower. And I don't know if, I'm, if I have the stuff to do that. I don't know if I want to do that, and I don't know if I can trust you to do that, God. And the answer is actually found in the book of Exodus. And we're going to find this God who uh, is big. And we're going to find this God who is trustworthy. And we're actually going to find that what Jesus is asking here is challenging, is difficult. It's countercultural. It's counter to what I want. But it's exactly the, the thing that I need. So that's where we're going to be going. Uh, we're going to have Roger Maddox praying for us. Where is, Roger's right over there. Yeah. What's that? Same old spot. Same old, is that where you sit? This is where we sit. That's your assigned seat? If you, if you don't want to say hi. I remember being so jarred when I first became a Christian and learned that I was in someone else's seat. That's not good. <laughs> don't do that. And I was like, just give me a seating chart. I'll be fine. <laughs> well, th- thank you. Uh, pray for me. Pray for us. And uh, lift up another church. Yeah. Well, God, we just thank you for today, God. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you thank to you, meet us here. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. We just ask that you would teach us, God. Sure, Kevin's up there speaking, but it's you that is teaching us, God. Work in our hearts, Lord. Mm-hmm. In the depths of our hearts, Lord, teach us to be like you. Make us more holy like you are, God. Thank you, Lord. We cannot do that on our own, only with your presence in our life, Lord. So I just pray for Kevin, God, to speak your word with boldness Mm -hmm. and uh, just be a vessel for your voice and your teaching today, God, Mm -hmm. and help us to hear. Give us ears to hear your word today, God. And I pray for Sage Hills Church over in Wenatchee. Mm -hmm. Thank you, God, for the word being spoken there. We pray, God, for a powerful ministry to happen today. And we just pray your blessing on all your people and just pray for Jubilee Service Day too, God, because that's dear to our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Just pray, God, that you would uh, continue that work. Mm. That meant so much, means so much to us, God, Chris and I, and that we've poured our hearts into, God. We just pray that it would continue, that, if, that uh, you would bless the people, uh, the, the kids and the teachers at Stevenson. through Lake Sam, and uh, we just thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Roger, as you're praying, I just felt like I needed to say, you're such a gift. You're just such a gift to us. You and Chris both, we just love you. Well, uh, because we're starting a new book of the Bible, you might be saying, wait a minute, that means there's a new Bible project video. You're correct, there is. <laughs> I just, I, I, I tee it up assuming you like love it. And if and you're like, I, this is the best, best part of my life is, is when I get to watch a Bible project video as if you can't find it on our website. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is going to be a summary of Exodus. I'm covering a lot of ground. I think like 11 chapters today. No, more than that. I think I'm covering 13 or 14 chapters today. Uh, and so I'm going to let the Bible project video do a lot of the heavy lifting. So this is going to be a summary and an overview of the book of Exodus. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. 
The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt, every house. It's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now, as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. 
And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at the design. Bible Project's a nonprofit, so every now and then they're like, hey, you should give us money. And what they're doing is excellent, so you should consider it. But <laughs> um, yeah, I just forgot to cut that part out. So Exodus is pretty cool, right? Moses' story is pretty interesting. Uh, and so the, it's, I love like, getting to do stuff like a Bible project and um, hearing sermons and things like that. But it's, it, it, to me, it's really important that we actually also go to the text <laughs> and like, actually open the scripture and read it. Uh, so we're going to get a summary, and I'm, I'm skipping portions. If you've been doing soaps, you've, you've gotten this, and it's, it's no problem. But um, So here's what the scripture itself says. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he'd done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? And I love the response because it's like trickery. <laughs> the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They're more vigorous and have their babies so quickly we can't get there in time. Foiled again. <laughs> so God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. So his plan was foiled because Israelite women are too good at giving birth, or too fast at giving birth, and so he's like, fine, we'll still take care of it. We'll throw them in, in the river. So this sets up the scene for what kind of person Pharaoh is like, right? And uh, Pharaoh was king, but he was also worshipped as a god, he was the God of the Egyptians. They were to bow down to him. They were to serve him like a God. So in the midst of this uh, devastating circumstance, what happens? Uh, as you, you saw in the Bible Project video, a woman um, puts her baby and boy into the Nile River, but first uh, creates this protective um, basket for him to float down to. And, and wouldn't you know it, of all the places that that baby could have floated to, he floated right to the princess, Pharaoh's daughter. And when the princess opened it, she saw the baby. 
The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. And the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. So if you're this mom and you hear this edict where all boys are thrown into the river to die, it feels hopeless. What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do. You can hide him for a bit, I guess. But then there comes a point where you just can't have a, a hidden baby. It just doesn't work. And so she says goodbye to her son, puts him in the river, and presumably says, this is the last time I'll see you. Farewell, and sends him into the river. And then they get it later, she's probably sitting at home grieving, wondering, God, where are you? What happened? I thought you were supposed to protect us. This other God, Pharaoh, is ruling over us right now, and there's nothing I can do about it. She gets a knock on the door, and it's her older daughter. and says, Mom, come quick. <laughs> the princess is calling for you. And so she goes, and the prin- this princess says, hey, can you nurse this baby? I will pay you. Here's some money to take care of your baby. <laughs> and so this, this, ba- this child that was once dead is now alive again. And uh, the, the um, mother eventually gives the baby to the princess to be adopted. And so you have this sense of Moses is just a baby, he has no ability to take care of himself. He has no ability to change his or alter his circumstances. He's just a baby. And he can't cry out to Yahweh. He can't ask Yahweh for help. And yet, Yahweh saves him. He has a plan for his life. He directs him. And he does this amazing thing. It's, it's almost like if you were an Israelite at the time and you were crying out to God, you're like, God, we're being oppressed by this other God. What do we do? And God's like, don't worry, I got a plan. I got an inside guy. And they're like, oh, you like the midwives were like your inside job to help us uh, still have boys. And he's like, no, 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 I got an even better plan than the midwives. I got an infiltrator. It's a baby. They're like, okay, I don't know how this baby is going to bring this God down. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I have a baby. And you're like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> and it's, oh, what would happen if I positioned a, a, a man in right there in Pharaoh's family, his grandson, that was also an Israelite? Now, wouldn't that be cool? And so you get this sense of like, Moses is the only person who could be Moses. And what happens next in the story, only Moses could do. Because no one else is positioned in a way where they can be an Israelite and also be an Egyptian. And so he sort of like hovers over the circumstances in this way. And it just did something to me when I, when I read this story about a baby being protected by God, having no ability to protect himself, having not cried out for it, having not asked for it. How much would your fa- what would happen to your faith if you understood how much Yahweh protected you? 
what would your life look like if you realized just how much this God does for you? And it feels like you're being oppressed. It feels like there's nothing I can do about my circumstances. I guess we're just going to have to throw the baby into the river. And yet, there's this God protecting, watching over, making circumstances happen a certain way. And in fact, positioning your negative circumstance to be the exact thing he needs for this next season. So, uh, Moses' life. He grows up in the palace. And then many years later, later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were focused to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived at Midian, he sat down beside a well. I'm probably going to take that last sentence out because it's not relevant to this story. But so here you have Moses and again, let's remember how we, how we started this with Jesus and Matthew saying, uh, if you give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. And if you try and find your life, if you try and make something out of your own life, you're going to lose it. And it just feels like Moses is here and he sees his people being oppressed and he's like, I have a solution. I'm going to act out. I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to do the, the thing that I think is the best thing to do. I'm going to kill this Egyptian. And it goes horribly wrong for him. He's just trying to protect his people. And then the next day, his own people turn against him. And he goes from Moses the baby, Moses the protected baby, to Moses the Egyptian, to now he's Moses the criminal. And then later, Moses, the refugee, he finds a new city. He runs away. Moses, the coward. But where else is he going to go? What else is he going to do? And again, in, that, in Moses' story, I see myself. Don't you? I just tried to do the best thing. I just tried to do what I thought was right. I just tried to make a decision. Someone had to act. It might as well have been me. And I just want to know, have you ever tried to help but made everything much, much worse? Anyone? Yeah. Oh, man. So Moses, as far as he knows in this point, his life as he knew it is over. His time in Egypt is over. His time as a prince is over. His time as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, is over. This is his life as a criminal. And he, he starts this new life. Moses becomes Moses the husband and Moses the shepherd. And he lives a quiet life and all is fine. He's, life is good now. Let Egypt happen over there. I'm removed now. And one day he sees this strange sight. He sees a bush and the bush is on fire. But the, the fire isn't consuming the bush. And so he comes before and he goes, oh, this is God. 
And he, he gets introduced to this God that, as far as we know in the story, he's never met. He may not know who Yahweh is. He may have heard of him, but he may, he's never actually met this God. He only knows the other God, Pharaoh, the God of Egypt. And so he meets this new God, and he says, what's your name? My name is I Am. My name is Yahweh. And Moses is like, well, what do you want? <laughs> and he's like, I want you to go back to Egypt. And here's what he says. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I'll be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God at this very mountain. But I know that the king of Egypt won't let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I'll raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. But Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord said. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses got really freaked out and jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. I, wouldn't, I would probably have said, peace, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not touching that snake. But Moses is braver than I am. He reached out and he grabbed it, and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, then they'll believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. And we're going we're gonna to skip slightly ahead, but he also has him like put his hand in his cloak and he pulls it out and it's diseased, completely covered in leprosy. And then he put, sticks his hand in again and, and it's like God is just doing magic tricks at this point. It's like, I just made your leprosy disappear. And so, then, but then Moses still pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or don't speak, hear or don't hear, see or don't see? Is it not I, the Lord? No, go. I'll be with you as you speak, and I'll instruct you in what to say. And when I said the Lord gave me this message like a month ago, this is the section that he gave me a month ago. Because Moses, it, God asked him to do something, and Moses gives three different protests. The first thing he says is, I'm nobody. Who am I? And I, I totally get that. I totally relate to Moses in that, in that section. I'm inadequate. I'm nobody. I'm a criminal, Moses would say. Every time I try and make things better, it gets worse. You got the wrong guy. I'm nobody. And God's response is, I'll be with you. See, you think you're, uh, you're meeting me here in this burning bush and then you're going to go away from the burning bush, which is going to make you go away from me. But you're actually going to be a container for my presence. I'm going with you. You're going you're gonna to take me with you. And then uh, the second thing he says is, people won't believe me. No one's going to believe me. Why would they believe me? That's... That's real to me. You ever, did God ask you to share your faith with somebody? I think that instantly. Well, they're not going to believe me. 
No one's going to listen to me because they're just not going to believe me. There's fear. And this third protest, I feel like we're really hard on Moses. And it, particularly it's because of this one. Uh, because he's like, he's standing before God. He's like, I'm not good with the words. I don't do the talking good. And I get tongue-tied. And like, Moses, you're standing before God. But, and I, I feel like if Moses were like applying on staff at a church or something, what he's saying would be very reasonable, right? Like if, if you're making a battle plan, you're like, I just want you to know my strengths and my weaknesses. Like let's, let's put together, uh, let's pool our resources. Let's figure out who's the best at doing things and then we'll go do that. And so if you're Moses, you're like, okay, I'm good at shepherding. I'm good at surfing, I guess, basket, float in the ocean, I guess. Uh, I don't know what Moses is good at. Uh, I, I'm pretty good with, uh, at speaking Egyptian, I guess. I don't know what I bring to the table. I, I'm Moses. I'm, I'm in two worlds. I'm, I'm a shepherd now. I'm a husband now. What do I do? I'm not, but, but if you want to use me in a way that's bad, make me be a public speaker. <laughs> and if God were asking Moses to go and Yahweh was just going to sit back and be a burning bush, Moses' protest is very reasonable, I think. If we're relying on Moses, this is an absolutely reasonable response. Well, God, I'm not good at that. Don't make me do that. I'm not good at that. I have other talents, but it's not that. And here's where I feel like God uh, spoke to me and God spoke this to Moses. Hey, Moses, this is not your fight. See, you think that I'm asking you to use your strengths and your gifts and your talents and be the best version of yourself. And you think that I'm, I'm raising you up so that way you can just use your skills. And I'm just going to hang back here and see what you do. And I'll be your like, you can recover with me. But you're just going to go do your thing. But this is not your fight. This is my fight. I'm using you as a container, as a vessel for my presence. So I'm asking you to go, but you're not going alone. And because this is my fight and not your fight, your gifts and talents don't matter. Your inadequacies don't matter. Your brokenness doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. Your shame doesn't matter. Your failure doesn't matter. Don't you see this isn't your fight? And so Moses goes back to Egypt and he comes from one God's presence into another. He goes from Yahweh's presence into Pharaoh's presence. And we start, the, what I've titled this sermon is Battle of the Gods. Pharaoh versus Yahweh. Two gods enter, one God will leave. <laughs> and when you think about God's fighting. What do you picture? Here's what I picture. I figured you would be chill and not actually respond. Uh, when I picture God's fighting, I sort of picture this. Because, yeah. By the way, if you're worried, this is not a spoiler from Endgame. This is old. This is from 
Civil War, which happened like a thousand years ago in Marvel movies. Uh, but this is what I picture when gods fight, right? And because, because of comic books and comic movies, this is sort of the expectation is like, you have a, a guy shoot like a, a laser beam at someone from his palm, and they're going to reflect it with their super special shield and then smash him in the face with it. And then a lightning bolt's going to come from one side, and it's going to hit the guy, and he's going to respond with a fireball. But uh-oh, I got an ice blast for that one. And then someone's going to run really fast, and it's going to create the whatever, like. Like, that's how you expect gods to fight, right? And they're just like beating each other up and then it's going to knock him through a hundred walls and he's going to fall and he's going to get up and he's going to fly to him and knock him through a hundred walls that way. And it's going to be this like epic battle. That's how I expect gods to fight. And so how are these two gods going to fight? Here's how Yahweh chooses to do it. Ten plagues. And you saw them uh, in, in the Bible Project video. Uh, and again, we're gonna, this is like four chapters in, in Exodus. We're going to go through them quickly. Uh, so he does uh, the, a plague of blood where he turns the Nile River into blood. And then he, uh, and after that happens, he's, he's like, okay, well, that wasn't enough for you. He's, he, he has a, what's called the plague of frogs, which seems kind of cool. <laughs> hey, Pharaoh, I got you a pet frog. <laughs> no, it's a plague. No, uh, he makes frogs pour out of the Nile and just like take over Egypt. They're covered in frogs, which feels more like an annoyance than a plague. And then uh, he does this plague of lice where he causes lice to come out of the ground and, and, and cover um, the, the people. And then he does uh, flies, which is even worse than lice, maybe. Uh, then pestilence, he causes this huge pestilence to come and just ravage the, um, the cattle and all the, the livestock of the Egyptians. Boils, he covers the Egyptians in boils. Hail rains down. Locusts just destroy all the vegetation. Darkness, and finally the plague of the firstborn. We'll get to those in a sec. And what's interesting is battle of the gods. Here's two gods fighting. Here is what Pharaoh's magicians could also do. So uh, Moses comes and he's like, I just turned the, the Nile into blood. They're like, eh, we've seen it. Pharaoh's magicians could do that too, which I actually have questions about. I'd like to, when I'm standing before God, I want to be like, so other people can turn the river into blood without you? Uh, anyway, uh, that was, that's what the narrative says. And then the, uh, that, so that's not impressive. And then uh, the plague of frogs happens and they're like, eh, we've seen that too. Our magicians can do that too. And then when the plague of lice happens, uh, they, it says the Pharaoh's magicians tried it, but they couldn't do it. And then after like the fourth or fifth plague, it stops saying the magicians tried it. It's just like, we got nothing. Sorry, Pharaoh. And so how does a god fight? He just destroys everything, doesn't he? And what's interesting about this is... It, Ten plagues. And if you're a Hebrew, you'd go, ten. Wait a minute. I've heard ten before. Ten commandments. No, we're not there yet. In creation, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And then God spoke ten times and spoke creation into existence. So, what are these ten plagues? The blood, uh, changing the Nile River into the blood is like Yahweh hovering over the waters that are formless and void. The plague of frogs is God just showing off. He's like, I created the things that dwell in the water and I'm going to abundantly make creatures come out of the water and just cover the land for you for a moment. Oh, and then because I'm God, I'm also going to take them away. 
He creates lice. It says the lice come out of the earth. And in the same way in creation, God spoke and he made uh, all the creatures on the land. And uh, then the, the plague of flies, it's in the, when God spoke in creation, he created all the things that fly, all the birds in the air. And so the first four plagues, God is just saying, I created everything and I'm going to create more. I created this world to be sort of balanced. Here's what it looks like in excess. And then the plague of pestilence, it switches because he starts, in the plague of pestilence destroys all the livestock in Egypt. So he's uncreating all the creatures of the earth. And then the boils, covers the Egyptians in boils. He's uncreating the image of God that he's created them in. They no longer look like he made them. Then the plague of hail just starts uncreating all the vegetation. It says the hail destroyed all of the vegetation that they could eat. So they no longer have food. He's uncreated that. And then the locusts come, and the locusts come, and they uncreate all plant life. So he is uncreating the world for Egypt. So when darkness comes, of course darkness comes, because what does God do? He said, let there be light, and there's light. But not in Egypt. This God has uncreated light. And then the plague of the firstborn, where God um, kills the firstborn son of every Egyptian, and we're going to get more into that in a future sermon when we talk about Passover. He's uncreating man. So who's this God? What does this God do to fight? He says, the earth was formless and void. And then I spoke creation into existence. And now, Pharaoh, other God, I'm going to speak I'm going to bring you back to an uncreated state where Egypt will be formless and void. No creation, no creatures, no vegetation, nothing. Wow. So two gods enter. And it turns out one god was just make-believe. He was just faking it. He was judged as a god and found to be just a man. Pharaoh, you got nothing. You thought you were a God, but when you actually come face to face with a real God, with this Yahweh, this I am, you realize you didn't stand a chance. There's no punching and going through walls and there's no fire blast being bounced off of shields and, and other like superhero-y things. It's just gone. You're done. Forget it. Not even a fair fight. This is the God that met Moses in the burning bush. This is the God that was saying, actually, I'm the one. Actually, I'm the God. And so then here's Moses, who this whole time, the failure. Moses, the criminal. Moses, the run who ran away. Moses, the murderer. And Yahweh, for whatever reason, uses Moses to be the container, to be the vessel for all of these things that happen. Why? He doesn't, clearly he doesn't need Moses. Clearly this God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. But I think this is it. See, Moses was a container. He was the vessel. 
And I was, I was trying to come up with, with some kind of like scientific thing of like a, a container that when you put something in it, it solidifies. And I don't think that that exists, but maybe you're, uh, there's a cool science nerd here that would tell me later um, that that exists. But something happened with, with Moses when he was being the container for God's presence. He was transformed. He was different. He became a different kind of guy. And in fact, Moses the criminal at the end of his life, is described like this in Deuteronomy. There's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in the entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all of Israel. So Moses, the nobody, because he was a vessel for God's presence, became Moses. There's never been another one like Moses. Moses, the one whom the Lord knew face to face. So this morning, as Jesus says to his disciples, to you and me, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. If you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. He's asking us for everything. But this God, this is the God who created everything. This is the God who says, even before you were able to cry out to me, I protected you. When you were a baby, I was watching out for you. When you uh, thought you were being oppressed beyond what you could bear, I was watching out for you and I had a plan for you. While you were going about doing life in your own way, while you were trying to hang on to your life and you thought that disqualified you from being my follower, I'm speaking truth into your life. While you feel shame, while you feel inadequate, while you feel failure, I'm the God who wants you to be my container for my presence, a vessel for my spirit. And in doing so, you're going to be transformed. So Jesus, if you want me to be your follower, I can do that. This God is a trustworthy God. Suddenly dying to myself doesn't seem as bad. Suddenly giving up my life for that God's sake, I can do that. So, Lord, we come before you. We come into your presence. And we thank you that you are the Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are the big, great, amazing God who created everything. And while we've disqualified ourselves by doing so many things wrong, by going our own way, by choosing what we thought was right and being completely wrong, by refusing to give you our life and all of those things, you still call us to be your vessel. You still call us to be the container for your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you. We're in awe of you. And while it is true that we've uh, opened our hearts to you and let you into our hearts, that's only a part of the story. The truth is Thank you, God, that you've allowed us into your heart. 
You have allowed us to be your follower. So God, we choose to follow you. We choose uh, to take up our cross and die to ourselves. We choose to follow you. Go ahead and reach in front of you and grab the two cups. The first cup, that's the bread. God, we lift that to you and we recognize that we have gone our own way. We've not taken up our cross. And as a result of that, you were crushed. And so we stick our finger in that and crush the bread to metaphorically say that my actions, even though I tried to make everything better, I made everything worse. And because of that, I've been broken. But more than that, you've been broken. Take that cup this morning. We lift up the second cup that is your blood. Oh, I'm so excited for when we get to Passover, God, because we're going to learn just how significant this blood is. But this is the blood that washes us clean. This is the blood that transforms us, that makes us not just a carrier for your Holy Spirit, but makes us transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this blood. And so we take it this morning in remembrance of you. Thank you, ushers, for coming forward. Lord, we offer everything to you. We want to be your followers. And for some in the room, you're going to call us to be bold in the Egypt of our lives. You're going to call us to do things that we're not comfortable with. You're going to call us to go places we don't want to go. But we are saying we are your followers. We will follow you wherever you send us. And uh, for some of us, you're going to call us to give all that we have. And we recognize that everything we own, all of our possessions, all of our money, all of our relationships, all of our time, everything is yours. And so to recognize that, to symbolize that, and to be obedient to you, and to put everything under your feet, we give you an offering of our money. And so we ask that you would bless it. And there's a, a certain sense where it doesn't matter uh, where it goes, but it does matter. But, we, uh, but what matters is, is that our heart is obedient to you, Lord, and we give it freely and abundantly, expecting nothing back. And thank you that you are the God who takes care of us. You're the God who watches over our needs. You protect us like a child in the Nile River in a basket. So we don't have to find our hope in our money or in our stuff, or in other people. We can find our hope in you. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.